come to this expositional study of the book of Nehemiah this morning, and Nehemiah is mostly thought of as the building of walls, the building of the destroyed and the broken down walls around Jerusalem. But the architect in me thought, well, this is a good time, be a good place this morning to talk about walls in general. Are walls a good thing or a bad thing? On one hand, our society talks a lot about breaking down barriers, breaking down the walls that divide people, social barriers, economic barriers, educational barriers, religious barriers, gender barriers, and bathrooms are a big thing right now. On the other hand, in this political season, as you know, there's a lot of talk about securing our borders, a building of a physical barrier, a wall along our border with, with Mexico, for our protection to preserve who we are as a people, our values, our way of life, and all of that. So are walls and barriers a good thing, or are they a bad thing? So I want to talk about the purpose of walls. Why do we have walls? What is their function? What is their purpose? And most importantly, what do walls symbolize spiritually? What is the function and purpose of walls? Uh, this is Architecture 101 this morning. Without walls, architects would be out of a job. Without walls, firefighters probably wouldn't have anything to do unless they went out into the forest. So what is the purpose of walls? Walls, first of all, define space. They define space. I mean, they declare what a space is all about. For example, this building with walls is a church building. And within these walls, behind these walls, the Church of Jesus Christ worships, we study, we pray, we fellowship together. In other words, this space is for something different than the spaces in your home. These walls just don't create space in building, they define the space. You can look at these walls from the outside and you know that it's a, a church building. Walls define the function and purpose of a thing. In your house, walls define your kitchen. They define the bathroom. They set the atmosphere. If you walk into a home, you can look at the walls, and oftentimes you can tell how the walls are decorated, and you may see that this is a, a Christian home. We're going to talk more about this as we go on, but the walls that you have in your spiritual life, the walls that you have in your own spiritual life, the walls the family has together as a spiritual life define whether or not yours is a Christian home. The walls and the boundaries that you establish in your life and in the life of your family define what you're going to let in to your life. What are you going to let into your family life? What will you keep out? What enters your home by the way of the TV set? Nothing but trouble, probably. By what you read through the internet by the activities that your family participates in. You know, I always think it's interesting because when I sit down with a couple who want a house plan and want their house design, you know, when they start talking about what they want, I know that what they talk about first is the always the most important thing as a family. You know, if it's the kitchen, I know that that's what the wife thinks is the most important thing about the house. So, you know, sometimes people want a big entertainment center, and that tells you a lot. Or, or a living room, family room, open kitchen where they can invite guests and have lots of people and those kind of things. And often husband and wife disagree on these things. You know, people used to ask me, well, why did you go into ministry when you're already an architect? And, and, and I would say that, 
you know, I was doing so much marriage counseling for couples who were building a house that I decided to go into it full time. But the walls that you have set the atmosphere in your home. Is it a Christian home or is it something else? Walls define the space. Secondly, walls limit access. Walls keep things out that you want kept out. The neighbor's cat, they keep out the bad guys. They don't do very well with sound. We got barking dogs, we got things in the neighborhood. Walls don't do a very good job of keeping spiders and ants out, but they do the best they can. Thirdly, walls provide protection. Walls protect us from the the elements. They protect us from the snow, from the wind, from the rain. They give us at least some protection from noises at night. And fourthly, walls set boundaries. Walls limit behavior. They prescribe what activities can take place. They give us guidelines. Have you ever thought about it? Walls keep cars on the road. You know, you drive on on I-84, whatever it is in Boise. It used to be I-80, and they've changed those numbers over the years that... I always have to look at a map to remember which one it is, but uh, you're driving out there where Orchard comes into the interstate and you look up and there's these 20, 25 foot walls, which is very common now between residential areas and retaining walls and and other things to keep the cars in the road. Uh, Walls keep the kids from throwing a 20 yard pass in the living room, maybe not a 10 yard pass, (laughs) but at least a 20 yard pass. So walls set boundaries on what kind of things are going to take place in there. Fifthly, walls declare ownership. And this is really important. The walls in your home declare that your home is not a public space. Passerbys just can't stop in front of your home and come in and have a picnic. Now you might have thought of something once in a while that I think of. I'll drive past them at City Park and there's a bunch of people out there and I can see them laying out that picnic spread and I can tell that that food looks really good, and they're putting it on the picnic tables. And I'll, I'll tell Jan, I'll say, I wonder what will happen if we just walk up and say, well, we're finally here. <laughs> no walls, what would keep you from doing that? <coughs> they might welcome us, they might not. When you drive on a toll road in some of the larger cities, you go through a barrier, you put your money in, and you know that that is state-owned land. And uh, they own that road, and they're going to charge you to drive on that road. So walls declare ownership. In the Slaybaugh home and in your home, walls show that something is owned. This is our home. Even if you rent, it is your home. It's not public space. It's not open space. It is an owned space by you. In our spiritual lives, it's the same way. Your spiritual walls are built and established that show you belong to God. You belong to God. You are not your own. You have been bought with the price. You have received Christ as as Lord. You have been bought by the price of his blood. And so the walls that you establish in your life show that you live differently than the world because you are owned by somebody. You are owned by God. So having very particular spiritual walls is one of the proofs that you belong to him. Now as we understand the basic nature of walls, what they are for and what they, are, what they do, whether they're physical or spiritual, what did it mean for the Jews living in Judah, in Jerusalem, at the time of Nehemiah, to have broken down walls? And what does it mean for us to live behind broken down spiritual walls? 
When the walls of your life have been broken down, it means that the enemy has had a breakthrough in your life. Now, I don't mean breakthrough like it's normally taken to mean a victory. In this case, a breakthrough means a defeat. The enemy has had a breakthrough in your life when the walls have been broken down. Your walls have been breached, and the enemy has gotten the upper hand. And so there's, it's like a horde pouring through of different values and different morals and different... Uh, beliefs and those kind of things. So, first of all, when there's been a breakthrough by the enemy, it means you've had a loss of identity. A loss of identity. Your borders have been breached. You, you don't really know who you are anymore, and other people don't know who you are anymore. Are you a child of God or not? Do you belong to Him? You, you still consider yourself a Christian, but your life starts to show less and less evidence of who you really are in Christ. When the walls of your life have been breached, it also means that you begin focusing on repair rather than growth and expansion. You start focusing on repair. Some people live here. They live in a constant repair maintenance mode. They're always trying to repair and put back together what's broken in their lives. Constantly working at that. Trying to keep up with what's broken. And there's no growth, there's no expansion, there's no spiritual growth because everything's all busted up. They're constantly running around putting out fires in their lives, morally and spiritually, trying to fix what is broken and trying to repair what has been ruined. And when the walls of your life have been breached, your ability to resist has been greatly diminished and maybe almost non-existence. Your boundaries are in the process of decay and ruin and boundaries are really the convictions and rules of our lives. They keep stuff from coming into our lives that threaten to destroy our lives and, and break our lives. You know, I really feel sorry for hoarders. I, I guess there was a TV show, a reality show for a while that showed these kind of things. But stuff just keeps coming in the doors. They just can't keep stuff out. It's stuffed here. It's stuffed there. It's stuffed all over the place. It's piled and, until it completely takes over. Every aspect of their lives is controlled by the piles of stuff and getting more stuff. One of my all-time favorite commercials is a Rubbermaid commercial, and it's not my favorite because it's cute or entertaining, but because it's true. A family looks around their house and sees all the stuff lying around. There's stuff in, piled in the living room. There's stuff piled in the kids' rooms. There's stuff in the kitchen. And they go down to the store and they buy these nice Rubbermaid containers, you know, the ones come in different sizes. They organize their stuff, they put it neatly away, put it up on shelves, and then they look around their empty house and their empty rooms and see how great it looks. And the husband and wife and the two kids all look at each other at the same time and say together, hey, we need more stuff. And they run out the door to go get more stuff. Their walls have been breached and the stuff has taken over. You see, if you don't have spiritual walls, the enemy can run right over you. We need to put up walls in our lives so we don't give the enemy a toehold, a toehold in our life. Because a toehold soon becomes a stronghold, and a stronghold becomes a stranglehold. You know, that's what is sin. That's what the morality of the world, that is what the morality of the, the sins of the flesh do. They they put a toehold, and that's, and that's what happened in, in Judah during the time of, 
of uh, Nehemiah and even before then. That's why the walls of Jerusalem were completely destroyed. And I can give you an example of this from, from zo uh, zoning and, and uh, development and those kind of things because a, a company buys a piece of property near your house. That's called a toehold. They buy the property. You don't think too much about it. It's near your house. They build a factory on it. That's called a stronghold. The factory begins taking all the available water for its own needs, leaving you with none, or leaving you with polluted water, and that's called a, a stranglehold. You know, that was my first question when Payette County decides it's a good thing to have a nuclear plant right over here. You know, and so they sold them the property. And they said, okay, it's zoned-wise, you can build on the property. There's the toehold. Soon as they build the nuclear plant, there's the stronghold. And once it gets functioning, then it's a, a stranglehold. Because my first question is, where are they going to get all the water that has to go through a nuclear plant for cooling? And if there's a national crisis, who's going to get the water first? <laughs> it's sure not going to be the residents and the farmers in Payette County. So that's my political zoning commission, zoning commissioner hat <laughs> related to a nuclear plant, right? Right over here, because it becomes a stranglehold. In the same way in our spiritual life, when once something becomes a stranglehold, it sucks up all our time and energy. So we need to protect the spiritual places in our lives. We need to have walls. We need to have borders. We need to have boundaries. We need to define spaces that certain things don't have access. We need to do this in our homes. We need to do it in our lives. We need to do it in our churches or disaster will come. <coughs> At Nehemiah's time, Jerusalem was in ruin because it had no definable barriers. It had no walls, physically or spiritually. And its enemies, the enemies of God, maintained a stranglehold on the people of God who lived in fear there. And that brings us to the rubble and the reason for the rubble. The broken down walls in Jerusalem were just not the result, were not only the result of a physical problem. Jerusalem had been defeated in war by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar utterly destroyed the city and the temple, and he had taken both the people of God and the vessels of the house of God into captivity into Babylon 800 miles away. The broken down walls of Jerusalem were symptomatic and the direct result of a spiritual breach, a spiritual breach. That was the reason for the rubble. And that is why the rubble continued year after year, year after year, decade after decade, really for a century and a half. Time after time, the people of God in the Old Testament had given the enemies of God a toehold, then a stronghold, then a stranglehold. And time and time again, God's people rebelled against God. They let the false gods of their neighbors into their lives, and they begin to worship the gods of the nations around them. They let the immorality and the abominations of their pagan neighbors creep into their lives until they utterly rejected the ordinances of God, and they refused to walk in the statutes, statutes of God. And by 586 B.C., God had had enough. All of that accounts for the total destruction and, and uh, devastation of Jerusalem at 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was used of God to bring judgment upon this idolatrous and rebellious 
and stiff-necked people. Would you please turn to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the last chapter in 2 Chronicles, verses 17 through 21, because we're going to work through some passages here, working up to Nehemiah, beginning at the end of 2 Chronicles, which is then followed by the book of Ezra and then the book of Nehemiah. Uh, in the original Hebrew language, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. They were one historical book that followed after Second Chronicles. So it's all in chronicle order at this time. But Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 17. Therefore the Lord brought up against the king of the Chaldeans, that is, Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm, he gave them into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, in the treasures of the house of the Lord, in the treasures of the king and of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed the Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. God had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that they would be in exile 70 years. So our question as we come to Nehemiah is, if God said it was going to be 70 years, why were the walls of Jerusalem still in rubble almost 150 years after its destruction by Nebuchadnezzar? Why did the enemies of Judah still maintain a stranglehold on God's people in Jerusalem a century and a half later? 91 years after the first captives returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel, we'll look at him in a minute, 91 years after the first return, the walls of Jerusalem still lay in ruins. There was still a stranglehold on the people. You know, that shows us something of strongholds and strangleholds that come into our own lives because after the temple was rebuilt, the people did not experience revival until after the walls were rebuilt. The walls were reestablished. So before we get to ne uh, Nehemiah, and we actually won't get to Nehemiah, we'll just get up to Nehemiah this morning, but I want to trace the history leading up to Nehemiah's time through the book of, uh, of Ezra. And I want to talk about three men who are used of God to restore the worship of God, to restore the city of God, and to restore the people of God. So please turn to the book of Ezra. It's right after 2 Chronicles. Following the book of 2 Chronicles is Ezra, and all of this is in, in chronological order. <coughs> Verse 1 of Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Stop there for a moment. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. The heart of a pagan king was moved by, by God. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 tells us how the Lord works in the heart of a king to fulfill his promises and his purposes. 
Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water. In the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he wishes. And the heart had turned the, or the Lord had turned the heart of Nebuchadnezzar to judge the people of God, and now the Lord turns the heart of Cyrus to take the people back to, to Jerusalem. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so they sent a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing and saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, that he, he is the God who is in Jerusalem. And so Cyrus was moved by the, heart of, by the hand of God to give the decree to go back into Jerusalem. And so a man by the name of Zerubbabel took a remnant back, a small number of people. And after they got back, they started rebuilding the temple. It, uh, they got the foundation laid, and then the enemies of the people and of God came against them and frustrated them and threatened them. And after the foundation was laid, nothing happened concerning the temple and its building for 10, 11, 12 years, something like that. Nothing was happening. So it was really a two-profit job. God raised up Zechariah and he raised up Haggai to come along to Zerubbabel. And you remember Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 through 7. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And so chapter 4 of Zechariah shows us how the Lord's work is accomplished. This is how the Lord's work is done the Lord's way. And that's going to be our main theme for the book of Nehemiah. How is the Lord's work done the Lord's way? And so the Lord moved on the, on the, the prophets to speak to Zerubbabel, and they got, finally got the temple rebuilt. And they shouted, grace, grace to it. Now, another 70 years or so after Zerubbabel, after Zerubbabel took the first group back to Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt, a priest by the name of Ezra led a group home from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, while Zerubbabel was called of God and used of God to rebuild the temple, Ezra was called of God and used of God to rebuild the people. The people. So turn over to the seventh chapter of the book of, of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 at, at verse 8. In verse 8 it says, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. That was the king Artaxerxes. For on the first of the first month he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem. Because the good hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set in his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Jerusalem. Not only was the temple in ruins until Zerubbabel and the people were used of God to rebuild it, 
And the walls and the gates of Jerusalem were in ruins until Nehemiah and the people were used of God. The people of God were in ruins spiritually. There was the 70 years of captivity in Babylon where the people of God were not able to practice the law of the Lord or teach his ordinances and his statutes in Israel. Can you imagine? While they were in captivity in Babylon, there were 70 years where the Bible could not be taught, as we would see it. Then there was another 70 years before God called another group back to Jerusalem under Ezra's spiritual leadership. And altogether, there was about 140 years when God's word could not be taught in Jerusalem. In our country, think about 140 years ago, that would take us back to 1876 when Ulysses S. Grant was president. It would be like us saying the Bible had not been taught in the United States since 1876. God's people were primed for revival. The temple had been rebuilt, but the people were clueless to what that meant. They had not been taught. And so the enemies of God still maintained a strong stranglehold on them morally and spiritually and politically. A Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. He was a piece of work. We'll talk a lot about Sanballat and Tobiah, who held the people in bondage uh, spiritually. Of all things, even after Nehemiah got the walls rebuilt, Tobiah, this enemy of God's people, was given an apartment in the temple complex, in the treasury. They took the treasury out of the temple and made that into an apartment for Tobiah, an enemy of God. Anyway, those are some things we're going to work with and see. And when we get to Ezra or Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll see where Ezra was used of God for the first time to declare the 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 word of God for decades. Ezra read from the book of the law. He interpreted it. Others explained it. They showed God's people how to apply it to their lives and they worshiped God. For the first time in 140 years, they were able to do what we enjoy and do and have the privilege of doing every Sunday morning. So we got some good stuff ahead of us. God moves Zerubbabel's heart to rebuild the temple. He did the Lord's work the Lord's way. God moved on Ezra's heart to rebuild the people. They did the Lord's work, the Lord's way. But only after God used a man by the name of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls and the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, well, let me put it this way first. There's, there's going to be three things that we see about Nehemiah's work here. Early in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king serves King Artaxerxes. Midway through the story, he's the builder of the wall. And in the third part of the book, Nehemiah is the governor of the city and the surrounding sections around Jerusalem. In other words, God also used Nehemiah to rebuild a nation. Wouldn't that be great? (laughs) Someone has said, God always has a purpose, he always has a plan, and he always has a person. Our study, or reason for studying the book of Nehemiah, is that each one of us, each one of us might be the person in the purpose in the plan of God that he has for us. That Grace Baptist Church might be the church that Christ builds, to put it another way, according to his plan and purposes. Nehemiah's testimony is that impossible tasks are accomplished through the work of the Lord. When Nehemiah first asked the Persian king Artaxerxes for permission to rebuild 
to go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls. And Artaxerxes agreed. That was a small miracle in itself. And Nehemiah did not boast of his own skill of handling the emperor, but he said instead, Because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. And when Nehemiah and the people were violently opposed by Sanballat and Tobiah, two formidable enemies of the project who had a stranglehold on the people, Nehemiah declared, the God of heaven will give us success. And when the wall was finished less than two months after that, he testified strongly, the work had been done with the help of our God. Nehemiah had skills of a great leader, and most of the commentaries that you read on the book of Nehemiah stress his leadership and the makings of a great leader, but I don't think that's the greatest lesson we learn from Nehemiah. Even more important was Nehemiah's complete and total dependence upon his God. It was his faith. It was his prayer life. It was his humility, his compassion for God's people, his brokenness before God. These are the kind of people that God uses for his purposes. These are the kind of people that are led by the Spirit of God, which led us to this part in Nehemiah. These are the kind of people through whom, in whom and through whom the Spirit of God works. It's not in who you are. It's not in what position you might have. It's not in your skills, even though God's going to use those. It's in your deep dependence upon God. It's in your faith. It's in your prayer life. It's in your humility. It's your compassion for God's people. It's your brokenness before God. And not only do these kinds of things describe the people that God uses, it also describes the people whom God revives. Revives. So when we study the book of Maya in a real and true sense, we're on a spiritual journey together in this book. It's a journey where God is going to restore and God is going to revive. He is going to bring revival and restoration to us as we study these words and apply it to us personally and apply it to our lives together as Grace Baptist Church. But in order for that to happen, we need to do a few things. We must enter our study of Nehemiah with that expectation. And I don't mean just before you come to church on Sunday morning, but feel free to read ahead. <laughs> feel free to meditate on where we're coming up in the book of, of Nehemiah. Because as we get into this, we're going to need to heed God's word at very critical junctures and very critical points. We're going to have to ask, okay, God, what would you have us to do? Who would you have us to be? Because doing the Lord's work the Lord's way will mean doing things differently than we've ever done them before. And doing the Lord's work the Lord's way means there's going to be some new things that we're going to have to do. And it's going to mean not doing some other things. But most of all, it's going to take a personal commitment from each one of us. A personal commitment to engage with God and His Holy Spirit in His Word. It will mean inviting other people that we know 
to come and engage in God's word. This is a time for each one of us to make worship and gathering together as God's people. To pray, to study his word, to fellowship together. It's a time for all of us to make this the priority of our lives. The priority. It's time to get rid of all the stuff that has taken over our lives. Only you and the Holy Spirit can identify and deal with those strongholds that were once a toehold and now they're becoming a stranglehold that the enemy has on you. And as we gather together in, in God's word and the study of God's word and prayer, we're going to be able to identify and deal with the strangleholds that the enemy has on Grace Baptist Church. I believe that. This is the time that God is going to set us free to do his work. This is the time that God's going to restore us, to revive us. And this is the time that we need to commit and look forward to what God has for us. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for this man, Nehemiah. Not only for how you used him and uh, how you worked through him to do your work your way, how the people of God at that time did your work your way, Father. But I thank you for this man because the words that he has written in this book that we call Nehemiah, Lord, speak to our hearts and to our lives even at this moment, in this time, in this place, in Emmett, Idaho, in the year 2016, when we watch the news and look around us, and all we see is rubble. And it seems that all we see is those who are trying to make rubble. Even as we hear about bombings in New York and uh, stabbings in, in Minnesota, all those things, they just become a part of our our daily news, Father, and other things, Father. I just pray that you would raise us up as your people in this place to do your work, that people's lives might be restored through Jesus Christ, that people's hearts might be drawn to you in Christ. That whatever the toeholds, the strongholds, and the strangleholds that are holding people, Father, whether they spiritual, moral, and many times even emotional, Lord, we look forward to being released. In Jesus' name.